welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hello, everyone. Buddy C. Welcome to the Tao of Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today, we have Amy and Paul and Chris and Greg. Perfect joy. Perfect joy. Really good story. Would you do our reading, Amy? Maybe uh, just the first paragraph, and then we'll talk about each paragraph as it goes. Of course. Perfect joy. Is there to be found on earth a fullness of joy, or is there no such thing? Is there some way to make life fully worth living, or is this impossible? If there is such a way, how do you go about finding it? What should you try to do? What should you seek to avoid? What should be the goal in which your activity comes to rest? What should you accept? What should you refuse to accept? What should you love? What should you hate? Were they asking the same question then that we're asked now continually? Which is, you know, what is life all about? How can I really be happy? Is that, that's what I read in this. That's the question they're asking, right? And how to find that happiness? What is it that will make me happy? It's interesting when he talked about this, is there some way to make life worth living or is this impossible? He automatically start started talking about doing. It's, it must be up to me to make this happen. Working. Yeah, I think it's absolutely personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's fluid. Yeah, and he, and in the paragraphs coming up, he talks about different ways people try to do this. But it's interesting how everything about it is: what do we try to do? What should we not do? What should our goal be? What should we accept? What should we not accept? What should we love? How about hating? Now maybe we need to hate something to be happy. Well, I think I had to experience, for me personally, I had to experience a lot of negative before I could even comprehend what is positive and what is good. Yeah. That's just the nature, I think, of my disease and being active in my disease, right? Like, I had to go through hell to even begin to comprehend what heaven might feel like. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all, I, I think for me, and we were talking about this earlier today, I was talking about this with a sponsee, that we have to... Uh, find our point of surrender and most of us will not surrender until we have to it has to be something negative to get us to that point or it did for me anyway i don't know anyone who was real successful and they said you know life is going great do i want to join the country club or go to aa first one of those i think yeah i think i'll now forget the country club i want to try for aa nobody does that that's not that's not the way it works. Was he just? I'm sorry. Go ahead. No. Uh, go go ahead. Amy. Is there some way to make life fully worth living? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Being at, knocking at the gates of hell, dying, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing we're talking about. Yeah, that's that's the one way for me. Then all this other stuff gets to happen. Welcome, Kate. Good to have you, ma'am. We've missed you. 
Hello. Glad you could join us today. I just put the uh, PDF in the chat. Perfect Joy is our is our reading for today. So I'll put that in the chat if you needed it. So okay, thank you. You know, I noticed what I noticed. I got sort of stuck on is is there some way to make life fully worth living? Is a whole lot different um, than being happy. I think you know. I don't think you have to be happy for life to be to feel that life is worth living. Um, you don't have to be happy all the time. I think um, I sort of feel like, particularly in sobriety, <laughs> that it's always worth living. But I'm certainly not happy all the time, and I don't strive to be. So I, I got hung up on that dif- difference. I'm not sure. Um, what to think of that? So. Maybe, maybe Chris, our idea of what happy is may need to change. Yeah, content. It, well, and I used the word um, content rather than happy the other day with my my therapist. Yeah, that pleased her to no content, no no end uh, because that's a lot different too from happiness, right? Um, Some people define happiness as everyone doing what they want them to do. You know, that's what makes them happy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, that could be a definition I used to have of happiness. Yeah, I'm happy when everyone's doing my will. You know, Craig, you have something, sir? It's asking for quite a lot of external sources to make you happy. It and is. Each, each, and each, each question is starting with what? What's going to make you happy? It's, um, rather than who, who who's going to make you happy? Who who can make you happy? So I, I think um, I've not read the whole thing. Um, I'm kind of hoping by the end it's going to flip it to say you know how how can you make yourself happy or who who can make you happy rather than looking all the all the externals. Yeah, it's going to get there. Uh, the next few paragraph little paragraphs give a good bit. Uh, Amy, could you read the next uh, three little paragraphs together, please? Just the three? Okay. What the world values is money, reputation, long life, achievement. What it counts as joy is health and comfort of body, good food, fine clothes, beautiful things to look at, pleasant music to listen to. What it condemns is lack of money, a low social rank, a reputation for being no good, and an early death. What it considers misfortune is bodily discomfort and labor, no chance to get your fill of good food, not having good clothes to wear, having no way to amuse or delight the eye, no pleasant music to listen to. If people find that they are deprived of these things, they go into a panic or fall into despair. They are so concerned for their life that their anxiety makes life unbearable, even when they have the things they think they want. Their very concern for enjoyment makes them unhappy. Thank you. That's the what's, right? They didn't say this is what would make you happy. It's what the world values. And then the things it does not value. All this is still external, though, right? These things are going to make me happy. 
then it's interesting they start pointing at the solution with that last couple of sentences. They're so concerned for their life that their anxiety makes life unbearable. Not their situation. Think about that. It's their fear that makes life unbearable, their anxiety. I just saw that. Uh, even when they have all the things they think they want. So when they get all this stuff, their anxiety still makes life unbear- unbearable. Even when they have those things, their very concern for enjoyment makes them unhappy. Because we're constantly looking for more. We, 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 we suffer from more moreism. Usually, find that the more I get, the more I want. It goes you get used back. to wanting, and <laughs> yeah, it goes back to that idea that we don't have what we want because we want it. We have programmed or preconceived notions from somebody else about what happiness looks like, or what fulfillment looks like, or what is what is good. I think so, Amy. I think from a child, I saw what I thought was success and what I should strive for. So I put my goal there, not knowing that that was not something that would make me happy. But we see it make other people happy. So we think. Yeah, we perceive. Yes. Making them happy. Yes. Perception. We see the things again and we say, oh, all those things, that must be what it takes to be happy. And then we realize that this is saying that it wasn't the things that made life unbearable. It was their anxiety that makes life unbearable. But where does that anxiety come from? It's fear that fear they don't. Loss. Yes. Fear that I'm losing something that I have or not getting something that I think I might want. Right. Exactly. I mean, I've told the story. I've had a little bit of success in business and a lot more loss than success over the years. But I remember the first time I got a little bit of money and I had one of these small checkbooks, you know, one of the little ones like this. And I was complaining to my wife because I had to go to a big checkbook because I couldn't keep the zero straight. What a thing to be complaining about. Right. And then I realized <laughs> that's funny isn't it, Kate, that you would complain about something like that. It wasn't a lot of I mean, it wasn't like tons of money. I think I sold a house. It was. 30 grand or something. You know, it wasn't like hundreds of millions of dollars. You know, it wasn't like even that, you know, and it was just a little bit of money from one house I sold. And, uh, and I, and I realized something, I said, you know, I thought I would be different if I could say I had any money in the bank, you know, and I'm no different. I'm the same miserable person. I know that this, this last Christmas I was at my parents' house and I went into a complete panic about the fact that I don't own my own house at the moment or yet. You know, I rent an apartment and I absolutely freaked out and started crying and started saying like, oh my gosh, I'm a complete failure in life. I don't own my own house. I'm never going to be anything. Like my life is going to be a failure forever. And it was all about like this idea that I had that like, owning my own house was it I hadn't reached it and therefore my life was terrible you know and I mean I still don't own my own house my life still isn't terrible I'm still doing fine you know and 
you know, my parents were just like, oh, Kate, don't worry. Like, if you really want to own your own house, we'll help you get a house. Like, that's fine. You know, don't panic. It's okay. And I, and I realized after I had freaked out that, you know, I wasn't, it was just the idea that owning a house, it's the same sort of thing this is talking about. If I owned a house, I would be happy. You know, if I had that, whatever, that prestige that I own my house, that would solve my problems, you know? And it was like, I felt kind of silly after after my big meltdown because it was like, oh, you know, actually look at all the good things that I do have in my life. I have all these good things in my life and owning a house probably won't make that much of a difference to them. Yep. And when you do own the house, do you then have the mortgage repayments, you have the insurance payments, you have the utility bills, you have insurances and did I mention the mortgage payments and and if the pipes burst it's your fault it's your yeah. cost not anybody else <laughs> have, have we convinced you it's not a good idea okay okay in the next people who have bought homes in the last couple of years will wish they had rented five years from now there's many of those mm-hmm. many of those uh, but it, it's interesting how the thing that is causing the issue here is their anxiety. It's not whether they've amassed the things or not. Like my bumper sticker, he who dies of the most toys dies, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's true. Mm-hmm. Still putting our value on these externals. But it's this uh, fear of loss that is part of this. Their concern for enjoyment makes them unhappy. I thought that was that's a huge sentence. I think as well as a fact of not being able to keep up with with other people as well. So you have you have that scarcity creeps in. So you, you see your friends having this, that, and the other, and you kind of get that that insignificance part and that that fear that you're missing out on something. Thanks, Craig. This is from uh, Letting Go: The Pathway to Surrender, David Hawkins. Uh, page 75 is talking about grief. The more emotional energy invested in the object or person, the greater will be the feeling of loss and the greater the pain associated with the undoing of the bonds of dependence. Attachment, this is part of room, attachment creates a dependency. Attachment on these things creates a dependency. And dependency, because of its nature, intrinsically carries with it a fear of loss. So what happens is we think we've got to have these things and we're afraid we'll lose them if once we get them or we're we're afraid we won't get them if we don't have them yet. And so with that fear and attachment causes us not to even be able to enjoy these things that we might get. There's a lot to do with uh, this anxiety involved in our our are thinking that these things are going to make us happy. Any other comments on those paragraphs? I'll put beside that the problem is not the problem. We're so concerned that the part of their life that their anxiety makes life unbearable. We think the problem is one thing when the problem is really something different. How about the next uh, couple of paragraphs there, Amy? The rich make life intolerable driving themselves in order to get more and more money, which they cannot really use. 
In so doing, they are alienated from themselves and exhaust themselves in their own service as though they were slaves of others. The ambitious run day and night in pursuit of honors, constantly in anguish about the success of their plans, dreading the miscalculation that may wreck everything. Thus they are alienated from themselves, exhausting their real life in service of this shadow created by their insatiable hope. Hmm. Oh, whoa, whoa. So they're in service to the shadow created by their insatiable hope. Ooh. I was thinking about the, the Tao quote, hope and fear are both illusions. What do you think, Amy? See, that's that. That's, you know, we we're talking about that. And we were talking before that, you know, it's hard to see hope as an illusion. But this is one. This is this is an example of that. I think I just finished Russell Brand's book. Um, and, and he talks about how, yeah. how Russell Brand. How, you know, how this is not really, you know, things aren't really as they are up here. Right. And so I think. And it goes back to the programming and, and the book Letting Go. And it's just and the shadow. All of this stuff is because I've been programmed and preconceived notions to what success, what happiness, what fulfillment, what all these things are based on. And even the belief in even the God of my understanding was someone else's understanding wasn't mine so all of these things are based on other people's ideas not my own they're not my my truth so the shadow to me here and even going back to the concern for enjoyment maybe i get these things maybe i acquire these things maybe i i'm successful in this area or that area and it's Again, based on what someone else's definition of those things are. And then I, I achieved that. And I'm still like, what the hell? I'm not happy. I don't, I'm not fulfilled. I'm not content because I've based it on someone else's truth, not my own. And it's interesting here. They exhaust their service, their, their energy on the shadow that their hope has created. You're chasing this shadow of hope that you're thinking that if you could achieve this, it would be different, that I would be happy if I could get this, if I could get that, if I could accomplish this or have X number of dollars or X marriage or X children or whatever. That's the insatiable hope that if I get this, that'll make me happy. The birth of a man is the birth of his sorrow. The longer he lives, the more stupid he becomes because his anxiety, because his anxiety to avoid unavoidable death becomes more and more acute. What bitterness he lives for what is always out of reach. His thirst for survival in the future makes him incapable of living in the present. How many times have I ate up the present moment because of my fear of the future? It's funny, we were discussing this earlier on at the, the Dow meeting. We were, we were on verse 50. Um, between birth and death, 
three in ten are followers of life, three in ten are followers of death, and men just passing from birth to death, also number three in ten. Why is this so? Because they live their lives on the gross level. He who, knew, he who knows how to live can walk abroad without fear of rhinoceroses or tigers. He will not be wounded in battle, for in him rhinoceroses can find no place to thrust their own. Tigers no place to use their claws and weapons have no place to pierce. Why is this so? Because he has no place for death to enter. Giving up the fear, hasn't he? Mm-hmm. He surrendered it. And living in the moment, I think. Living more in the moment. And is that not the whole point of this whole thing anyway? Is living in the present moment? I mean, that's that's what I see enlightenment as, is teaching us how to live in the moment. I never I never learned to live in the moment. That's what recovery is teaching me, is how to be where my feet are, you know? Well, it's funny because I can live in the moment when we're talking about living in the moment, when we talk about doing it. But then when the real world kicks in, that's when I kind of backslides. The shadow shows up when the shadow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a practice. What, Craig? I'm saying, is, is, that, is that what they mean by this is, this is something that we should be practicing? I think so. You mean it's not a one fix? There's, there's not one. I can't just read it once and be done with it. Chris? Is, um, is living in the moment the same thing as um, being true to yourself? If you're doing um, it right now. L- later on in there, I wrote a note about about that. That struck me in the, in the poem yeah. down below. So. I think it is part of that is Chris, and I know I've said before, you know, this is, I think this is showing us several um, descriptions of fear, just showing us fear. And my fear always takes me out of the moment. My fear is never in the moment. It always takes me out of now. But when I'm loving, it always brings me in the moment. I can't love people in the future. I can fear about the future, but I can't have love about the future. That's something I have to do right now. It brings me to the present moment. And I think that's so important with that we learn in all these different uh, practices uh, that to to react to compassion, react with compassion, to be to, to have compassion in our life. And I think that compassion is what brings us to the moment. And that's what fear kept me out of was the moment, always. So, it, and it is about because how can I be true to myself if I don't even know myself? You know, if I'm still looking out there for all the mm-hmm. answers instead of turning that light around, like we learn in recovery to do. Start looking at, you know, if we're disturbed. Or does it say, look, it doesn't say look outside to get all these things. It says something wrong with us. That's a positive, not a negative. That can sound negative, but that's not to beat us up. That's so that we know that there's something we can do about it because we can't do anything about what someone else does, but we can do something about what we do. That's what I've learned in recovery. So Mm -hmm. does that help, Chris? Yeah, I think so. um, 
I think the water's still a little murky. <laughs> sure it is. It'll hopefully as we get through this, it'll uh, get a little oh, clearer. Yeah. Uh, anyone else have a comment at the moment? Yeah, just uh, when it was talking about living in that shadow. It reminded me of Romans twelve, where it says, "Take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life in place it before God as an offering." Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without ever thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity. Um, God brings out the best of you, develops well-formed maturity in you. So rather than getting involved in the culture of what everybody else is doing, it says the same thing in uh, 4.20. I never just sit and do nothing while waiting for him to tell me what to do. Rather, I do whatever's in front of me to be done. and I'll leave the results up to him. However, it turns out that's God's will for me. I must keep my magic magnifying mind on my acceptance and off my expectations. For my serenity, which that's what this is talking about, serenity, really, this perfect joy, I think, is serenity. It says, my serenity is directly proportional to my level of acceptance. When I remember this, I can see I've never had it so good. Thank God for AA. That's uh, page 420 in the big book, fourth edition. But uh, While you're there, though, flip back to page 413 at the bottom, it says, if I could just control the external environment, the internal environment would then become comfortable. Yeah. Flipping the page to 414, it says life keeps getting simpler and easier as we try to reverse my old idea by taking care of the internal environment via the 12 steps and letting the external environment take care of itself. Yep. Thank you, Amy. Here I see external everywhere, right? Okay, what about the self-sacrificing officials and scholars? They're honored by the world because they're good, upright, self-sacrificing men. Yet their good character does not preserve them from unhappiness or even from ruin. Or okay, Their good character does not preserve them from unhappiness nor even from ruin, disgrace, and death. I wonder in that case if their goodness is really so good after all. Is it perhaps a source of unhappiness? Suppose you admit they are happy. But is it a happy thing to have a character and a career that leads to one's own eventual destruction? On the other hand, can you call them unhappy if, in sacrificing themselves, they save the lives and fortunes of others? Take the case of the minister who conscientiously and uprightly opposes an unjust decision of his king. Some say, tell the truth, and if the king will not listen, let him do what he likes. You have no further obligation. On the other hand, Zhu Chu continued to resist the unjust policy of his sovereign. He was consequently destroyed. But if he had not stood up for what he believed to be right, his name would not be held in honor. So there is the question, shall the course he took be called good if 
at the same time it was fatal to him. I wrote beside that, is fatal really bad? You know, do we really know what good and bad is? It's still looking externally to justify what is good and, you know, still looking externally at all those things as if if he succeeded would have been the right thing. I don't think that's a really good example of what they're talking about, really. Any comments? I cannot tell if what the world considers happiness is happiness or not. All I know is that when I consider the way they go about attaining it, I see them carried away headlong, grim and obsessed in the general onrush of the human herd, unable to stop themselves or to change their direction. All the while, they claim to be just on the point of attaining happiness. Almost there. I can almost grab the shadow, right? For my part, now we're talking about this guy's experience now, right? He's talking experience. I cannot accept their standards, whether of happiness or unhappiness. Exactly what I just said. He can't accept their standards. I ask myself if after all their concept of happiness, I ask myself if after all their concept of happiness has any meaning, whatever. My opinion is that you never find happiness until you stop looking for it. My greatest happiness consists precisely in doing nothing, whatever that is calculated to obtain happiness. And this in the minds of most people, is the worst possible course. I will hold to the saying that perfect joy is to be without joy. Perfect praise is to be without praise. If you ask what ought to be done and what ought not to be done on earth in order to produce happiness, I answer that these questions do not have an answer. There is no way to determine such things. Yet, at the same time, if I see striving for happiness, the right and the wrong at once become apparent all by themselves. Contentment and well-being at once become possible the moment you cease to act with them in view. And if you practice non-doing, wu-wei, you will have both happiness and well-being. Comments? The phrase in the minds of most people mm -hmm. just supports the idea of what happiness is up until I start investigating what my own truth is, is other people's what's in the mind of other people. I, I love the sense. I cannot tell if what the world considers happiness is happiness or not. I think that's about perception because I think happiness could be and probably is very different for different people based on for me based on my experience how about the that whole little phrase my opinion is that you never find happiness until you stop looking for it right i, I really love that line that's right on for me the i i had a similar feeling um with uh Step three, you're looking for a higher power. You can't look for it. You, you can't conceive the nature of it until until you have it. And so why? how can you look for it? 
So you didn't you didn't find your higher power till you stopped insisting on it. Stop looking for it. Yeah. yeah. Forcing the issue, right? Yeah. So is that the same then, I guess, as looking for external satisfactions, looking for happiness externally when stop looking for it out there because it's already in here? How can it be that simple? <laughs> Why does it take so much pain to get there? Because we've overcomplicated things. We've spent years and years and years forgetting it. Mm-hmm. It's like the story of the um, it's like the story of the guy that buried the treasure. Or the, the the god was looking to to hide man's superpower from him, and he somebody suggested putting it on a hill. And this says no, he, he'll learn how to climb it and find it. Somebody else suggested burying it, and and this says no, they'll, they'll learn how to dig and find it. Somebody suggested burying it down below the sea, and somebody says no, he'll learn how to swim and big up from that. And then turn around and says, you know what? I'll bury it with the number because we'll never think to look there. Mm. How about this line? After that, my greatest happiness consists precisely in doing nothing, whatever that is calculated to obtain happiness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Does that mm-hmm. not remind you of recovery? In that, how is me helping someone else going to help me? Mm-hmm. That can't work. When the serenity I feel is greatest when I'm doing for you rather than doing for me. That sounds crazy, but it, it that's the way it works for me. And I, I think you guys see that too. I see heads bobbing, you know, so it's the same as what it's the same as when you're in early recovery and you get those cravings going and somebody says, What can I do? Go and help somebody. To take take your attention off yourself and go and help somebody. You usually find that works just as well. I see striving for happiness. The right and the wrong. Quit dividing. Quit looking. Striving, forcing, pushing. Uh, the right and the wrong at once become apparent. So like you, know, you automatically see what's going on when you quit the striving. You just see it all by themselves. I was thinking about, let me find it, the fruit of the spirit. This is, we got two Bible quotes today. I don't know, Craig, we're going to have to know Bible next week. We're going to have to even this out. Um, I'll, I'll try. Okay. Galatians 5, 22-23 says, The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. I think happiness is somewhere in there. Fruit of the Spirit, the way that was explained to me was, I wish I'd come up with this one myself, but I didn't. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and it is seen as joy, peace, forbearance, kindness. We can't see love, but when love's in our life and things are coming from love, it's going to be seen as these other things. So it's like the fruit, and it says the fruit of the Spirit's love. So I believe the fruit of doing the will of God for our life, like we like we read there in uh, the big book, would be we'd start seeing love spring up in our life. And maybe all this happiness that we're looking for is just a fruit of doing the right thing. It's not in anything that we accomplish or in any transactional way, but. It's just fruit. How do you get fruit to grow? You can't make fruit grow. You can't 
you know, go out and work a deal with a tree and you got to have apples and, you know, it doesn't work that way. That's crazy to even think that, right? But this is the fruit of the spirit, not the result of the spirit or not what God does for you. You know, not that it's the fruit. So I, I think it's the result of love growing in our lives. So then we realize, hey, it doesn't matter what I get. I can be happy regardless of those things are not the important things. I'm still me. If I don't change me, no matter what I have, I'm still bringing me with me. And that's the problem. The problem isn't the things. The problem is me. Because if I'm miserable without things, I guarantee you I will be miserable with things. Amy, why don't you read the, the rest of it for us, please, if you don't mind. Here's how to sum it up. Yep. Here is how I sum it up. Heaven does nothing. Its non-doing is its serenity. Earth does nothing. It non-doing is its rest. From the union of these two non-doings, all actions proceed. All things are made. How vast, how invisible this coming to be. All things come from nowhere. How vast, how invisible. No way to explain it. All beings in their perfection are born of non-doing. Hence, it is said, heaven and earth do nothing, yet there is nothing they do not do. Where is the man who can attain to this non-doing? And I think when it says non-doing, I think of non-doing for themselves, like in a selfish way. There's definitely action. All actions proceed. All things are made. How vast. How invisible. I mean, when we're walking in this effortless effort, this Wu way, how many times have you just done the next right thing and situations happen that are so far beyond your control that you couldn't make happen that just evolve and happen in your life? I mean, have y'all, I've experienced that time and time and time again. We, we call it, you know, coincidence or a synchronicity of some kind. But that seems to be what happens for me. I'm sure that's happened. Y'all, y'all seen that too, right? Just lately in my life, I've been really worried this whole last semester. Like I got to find a job. I have to move, have to finish school. Really worried, very focused in on myself and me, 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 me. And then I decided to just let that go, not try to move, not freak out about finding a job, focus on helping my sponsees, focus on like being, doing, I've been doing some volunteer work, focus on like other people for right now. And I'm way happier. I feel much happier right now than I had been feeling focusing on me. So. And I have just got a job offer. So, like, I, you know, that just came out, like, whoo, out of, like, nowhere. You know, and I didn't even try for that. You know, that just came out, like, randomly. So that, that just happened from me not looking for it, kind of. But I feel much, much happier when I'm helping all these other people than when I'm 
thinking, what can I do for myself? I've got to get this for me, you know, way happier. And Kate, what this was saying was when we're only concerned about ourselves, we actually block things from happening for us. That's what this is talking about. All the letting go is about that. They say we don't have what we desire because we keep desiring it. When we let go and we surrender and say, you know, it's okay if it happens. It's okay if it doesn't. Then it starts happening. Well, that's how recovery happened for me. I, I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't get God to help me when I finally said, you know, God, either you are or you're not. Either this is going to work or it's not. I'm done trying. It started working. I don't understand that. But this seems to be a real principle that I have difficulty with because I want to get in there and make it happen. I want to push, push, push. Because this time it'll be different. This time it'll work out because I know what's best. And I think, um, you know, just sitting here thinking about how much effort and energy it takes to try and fix, manage, control, and manipulate the circumstances or people or situations to fit what I think it should be. That's a lot. It is a lot of energy and effort. And it never ends up the way I think it needs to be anyway. So if I can stay in that just non-doing, you know, I mean, no, like you read, buddy. I mean, I've got to do the next right thing, right? Sometimes doing the next right thing is doing nothing. Doing nothing is action for me. It's something. <laughs> Sometimes it's harder for me not to do anything, right? But wow, I've. It, it's like I have. It's like all of a sudden in in sobriety, there are more hours in the day because I'm not tiring foolishly. I'm not expending energy on stupid shit that doesn't matter. You know, learning to be comfortable with that vulnerability of letting go of the control. For me, the most difficult part, because I never want to take my hands off the wheel, ever. You know, I mean, it's just not there. I'm going to have that control. And to take my hands off the wheel, not even have a knee on the wheel, you know. (laughs) What do you, I mean. We're not made to live that way, are we? You know, I mean, it's just like, it freaks me out. That That's part of that Tao quote of letting your mud settle till the right answer appears by itself. It doesn't mean that you do nothing. It just means you let it go. And you keep letting it go. Now, you do what's in front of you to do. That's how, what I've, uh, I have a really good example of this. Uh, I finished Writing this book I'm fixing to publish last fall. I told y'all the story. I need, I didn't know the next steps to do. I could do everything from hire a publisher to, I mean, I had no idea what to do with it at all. Kate knows all about this. Um, and so I just said, okay, I'm looking for, for what I need to do next. I'm open, you know, kind of just like I let it go. And, uh, uh, I had all of these, uh, the, the nightly the nightly meeting I had some Facebook posts that, that were supposed to get done they didn't get done uh, so instead of fussing at the sponsee I said that's okay I'll just do it I'll do it myself and not out of anger I just said I'd do it so I did it one person responded to me off of 
15 or 20 minutes of posts in all kinds of Facebook groups, like 15, 20 different groups. One person responded. And uh, usually no one responds. But this lady did and sent me a private message. Wasn't a friend of mine or nothing on Facebook. And she said, uh, we were talking and she, she was a author, some repo, some recovery author. And I said, Hey, I said, uh, I'm looking for someone to help me with this book. Do you have any suggestions? He said, yeah, I've got the perfect person for you. And it ended up being the perfect person. I ended up hiring that person and that person is helping me with the rest of the book. Just like I needed. I could have been fussing and fighting and pushing and trying. Instead, I just did what was in front of me to do. Okay, I'll do this. Had nothing to do with what I found at all. And that's the way things seem to work for me. If I'm letting go, you know, and if I'm surrendering and practicing this non-doing of, and the non-doing for me is the non-striving, the non-pushing, the non-controlling, the non-directing. We know what that feels like. It's chasing the shadow, right? But I think I got to get comfortable living without a plan. That's the that's the part for me that is the most uncomfortable. Living without a what was that? A plan. A plan. Yeah, without having it figured out, Chris, because I have it figured out. I want to know the one month, six month, one year, five year, mm. ten year, twenty year plan. Everything lined out exactly how it's going to happen. And I think to live this way, we have mm. to let that go. Doesn't mean we don't make smart decisions, but we leave room for it just to happen in front of us. This all things come from nowhere. That reminded me of the, what is it? The ninth step promises. We suddenly realize God's doing for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That's the coming from nowhere, I think. Learning this way of life, though, really <laughs> gives you this happiness that it's talking about, right? Yeah, there's a tricky um, difference between knowing that you need a maintenance plan for your house and because um, you know you, you really need some some sort of a plan but how you know um you, you see, i don't know if you can tell what i'm getting at or not you but you need some sort of plans but you have to take them as they come you you have to limit how you force the plan. You, you just gave the, the answer there, Chris. It's limiting our force, our push. Mm -hmm. If, okay, I need to mow the grass and I may need to fix one. the lawnmower. Okay, I'll fix the lawnmower. But I don't sit and have fear that my lawnmower is not going to crank when I go out to use it. I'm not going to have anxiety about the lawn. A lot of this is about the anxiety that we put on things, mm. the push, the fear that we have behind our actions. It's going to get the grass is going to get too high if my lawnmower doesn't start. Oh my God. What if it doesn't start next week, Chris? <laughs> what am I going to do? Yeah. It, it sounds silly, but we can run ourselves around yeah. and around about things all the time like that you know you, you just imagine how long the, the line is at the place to fix the mower you know and my neighbor has a better mower than mine 
<laughs> they got that big nice mower. I'm embarrassed right. to get out and use my mower. You know, Maybe I need to that. buy a riding mower. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you see, just with the grass and mowing the grass, the rabbit hole you can go down. Yeah. Just with something as simple as the grass, not to mention your job, your kids, everything else. I mean, you, you can go in a million directions of this chasing. And I think it's back to chasing, chasing the, the shadow. I think that may be the most significant line in this whole, one of, there's a lot of good lines, but that one, where was it? Uh, oh, here it is. Top of page two or 100 on the printed pages. Uh, exhausting their real life in service of the shadow created by their insatiable hope. You're chasing a shadow. You're not just mowing the grass. And, and that's part about being prayer. Okay, I'm just going to mow the grass today. Okay, I'm mowing the grass. I'm not into, oh, what if it doesn't crank next time? I'm right mm -hmm. here doing what's in front of me to do. That's a big part of it, too, because we're talking about being happy in what we're doing. And I can't be happy in mowing. I can be happy in mowing the grass. But I'm not going to be happy in mowing the grass if I'm caught up in my fear that my mower won't run the next time I have to mow it. How crazy is that? But mm -hmm. how many times do we do that? Maybe not with the grass, but with something else. Well, and, and the, the grass is a big problem in May. You know, it's not so bad in September, right? <laughs> or yeah. at least up here. Yeah, yeah. If, then it becomes uh, getting ready for winter. <laughs> Oh, yeah. You got a lot to be afraid of, Chris. You get a lot of snow up there. So you see what I'm saying, though? It all goes back to that anxiety. Oh, I see. Yeah. With, with our like fear. fear in capital letters. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Good stuff. Any other comments, guys? One of the things I thought of, and I'm not sure I see it anymore, but is... Um, Staying with your true nature as well. All things, uh, let's see, all things, all beings in their perfection are born of non-doing. I love that, that pair of lines in the sense of a not planning. The, the, uh, you go to nature and you see, you see the beings doing reacting in their own acting in their own way they're not acting out of the things we've been talking about you know fear want, desire wanting other things and it makes me wonder what the nature of people are the true nature of people i'm thinking that that non-doing means that we're not doing what we were talking about at the first, not looking outside of ourselves at all of these external ways yeah. for happiness, that all the things we think are going to make us happy or not. That is the non, that would be the doing instead of the non. Yeah. They're That's not great. doing that. Okay. That's how I'm thinking of this. This is good. This has been a great reading. And that's something that we get hung up on a lot of times. You know, we see not doing and we think that means, you know, watching friends reruns and eating frozen pizza, you know, but it, that's not what it's talking about. You know, mm -hmm. it's not talking about doing nothing. You know, it's talking about, I don't think, 
the way I've experienced it is by me just doing the next right thing that's in front of me to do, leave the results to the results and just keep doing the next right thing. And before I know it, it's like the proverbial wall, Chris, that I talk about. Have I thought, have you, do you know that example? It's really simple. We have the wall to get over. Used to, I would go to the wall. I would work to climb over this wall or fence. And I would think that I would do all my effort and then God would help me with a little bit I couldn't do. Like, give me a little cheek push. I'm almost over and I can't quite make it. Push me on over. No concern with anyone else. No concern with anything else. Just me and then God helping me if I could not do it myself. Well, what I learned in recovery was when I come up to that wall, whatever it is, instead I say, okay, who can I help? Who is here for me to help? Somebody's here for me to help. Who is it? And I just look around and whenever that person appears, I go help them. There's always somebody that shows up that needs help. I go help them over the wall. Then all of a sudden I'm over the wall. I don't know how I did it. Did I, did they help me over? Did I go through it? Did I go under it? Who knows? All of a sudden I find myself on the other side of the wall because I spent my time helping the other person. Just like the daily reflections for May 9th, which is my favorite. The lady had, uh, she wanted to overcome her fear of elevators. So she said she's going to walk through her fear. She actually goes to the elevator, walks in the elevator, and there's a lady in the corner, cowered down, afraid of the elevator. She goes over and comforts the lady that's in the elevator that she walks in to get over her fear and comforts her and she gets over her own fear. You can't make that stuff up. I mean, that's incredible. But I think that's how it works. And I think that's how this works. That we just make ourselves available. And that's the non-doing is making ourselves available without our agenda and our fixed plans and how we feel this should have to work. And we let we as we learn to let go of that surrender, the answer comes from nowhere. Like it says here, all things come from nowhere. Just happens. That's where our peace and joy is. Hmm. That's good. Thank you. Any other comments? All minds clear? Mm. Well, thanks, guys. Well, y'all have a great week, and we will see you next week. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use, and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.